Well, good morning, Grace. I said that like I know you guys. Well, I may not know each of you, but I think I know something about all of you. I've had the opportunity to talk to the uh, staff and the elders over several weeks, especially this weekend, and I just want you to know they're saying great things about you behind your back. That sounds like maybe that's new. I, I don't know. Well, let me introduce myself through an illustration um, in the message this morning, just kind of get to know me a little bit. Um, first question is, you guys ever had any uh, family tension? A little bit? A little bit? Um, well, I, early in my engineering career, I had some tension with uh, my parents, had a pretty painful parting of the ways, actually for a few years. Now, we've been uh, reconciled, and Dad is excited about the fact that um, I've been in ministry, not in engineering, which that was not part of his plan for me. Uh, But here's what happened. My dad's a pretty smart guy. Uh, He's a fantastic uh, engineer, uh, engineering uh, manager. Uh, One of the things, he had a pipeline specialty, so he built pipelines uh, in a lot of different places of the world, through the jungles of Colombia, through the Sahara Desert. Uh, many years ago, he actually was on record as having um, overseen the project to build the largest or the longest molten sulfur pipeline in the world. And he was pretty proud of that. He enjoyed that. And I think that's quite, a, quite an accomplishment. Uh, both mom and dad, uh, our whole family lived in a number of different countries, but mom and dad continued to live uh, in different countries. And both he and mom, are, they're fluent in Spanish, they're pretty conversive in uh, Arabic and Farsi. So they're kind of like high achiever kind of people. A lot of energy, uh, a lot of work. Now, in the last half of my dad's career, uh, without me knowing it, uh, my dad had developed a wonderful plan for my life. <laughs> okay? He wanted me to pick up where he left off in his uh, engineering uh, accomplishments. Now, he was well connected. Uh, he had some great friends who were CEOs and COOs of international construction companies and, and oil companies. So these are kind of big wigs, and he had some big plans uh, for me. And we were painfully estranged for a few years uh, because I decided to leave engineering and go into ministry. Now, um, how many of you still do those annual or know about annual Christmas letters that you might send out to your family. Any of you still do it? There are a few people in the first service. It looks like you guys have gotten rid of that tradition in in your family. But anyway, uh, my mom and dad send out their annual uh, Christmas letter, and it goes out to their friends, all these CEOs, COOs. And um, so in the letter that went out that Christmas, here was the line describing the accomplishments of uh, their son, Jeff. Uh, Jeff and Kim are out in California having a religious experience. (laughs) It made it sound like a couple of Moonies selling flowers at the uh, LAX airport. Uh, I really didn't appreciate that. There was some tension over that. Um, But there was a bigger tension. After that came out, there was a bigger tension for me in that. Uh, Basically, I wasn't even in seminary yet. And based based upon what my mom and dad had just said, I felt like my engineering career was gone. 
My limited experience with these CEOs and COO friends that my dad introduced me to, to led me to believe that the value of one's spiritual life, if you even needed one, was much secondary, much less important to you than your professional life. So in my immaturity uh, at that time, I was thinking, man, if this pastor thing doesn't work out, and I'm thinking, I've just been blackballed from the engineering community. There's no going back to an engineering career now because of what mom and dad has said. Now, all my years of engineering education and experience, down the drain. And though it reflected poorly on my faith, uh, you know, back then, there was some real uh, heavy anxiety and tension within me. I mean, I remember thinking, oh, I sure I hope I heard God right in calling me into ministry. He sure better come through for me now because there's no going back. The real tension, although not a really mature response on my part. So this morning, think about your response to these simple questions. Is there, is there trouble in your life? Is there a weight of anxiety? Is there a burden of tension in you as a result of this trouble? If you said yes to the, any of those, you'd be in agreement with Ecclesiastes 8.6, which says, for there's a time and a way for everything, although a man's troubles lie heavy on him. So there's a time for hope and joy and peace and comfort too. But there's also a time of trouble, and when it is that season, it can weigh heavily on us. Okay, now for the benediction. <laughs> well, aren't you glad you crawled out of bed to come and hear that this morning? Well, just hang in there. There's more to this. Don't be discouraged, because we're going to read how Christ followers can be victorious even in those seasons of trouble where there is heavy tension. And the answer to that may surprise you. Uh, the answer has absolutely nothing to do with deliverance from the season of trouble. You can have victory even in the midst of the trouble. This morning, we're going to see that, that we can have victory, and it has nothing to do with being delivered from the trouble. If you've read the book of Acts, you know there's some, there's some major themes in there. There are truths and tensions. There are victories and defeats. And we don't have time to read Acts 3 in the first half of Acts 4, so just allow me to summarize this. The outline, the title of our message this morning is Courageous Prayer. And it's courageous prayer that gathers together. It's courageous prayer, prayer that declares God's sovereignty and preeminence. Courageous prayer that declares and desires His kingdom. And then finally, courageous prayer that deepens a bold obedience. Now, in Acts 3, God has just empowered Peter and John to miraculously heal a lame man at one of the entrances to the temple in Jerusalem. The people are astounded, and rightly so. They are in awe, and they're receptive to the gospel. 
So Peter preaches, and you know what happens? Well, a couple things happen. 2,000 more people believe the gospel. 2,000 more people enter the kingdom of God. And almost simultaneously with that, the spiritual leadership of Israel become infuriated. There's now what I would call a diabolical tension that's rising in Jerusalem. The spiritual leadership of Israel, who has just executed the the crucifixion of Jesus, now has his disciples in their crosshairs. You see, in the healing of the lame man and the preaching of Peter, the power of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, is continuing to validate Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus as the Savior. It's also strongly denouncing Israel's spiritual leadership. So the diabolical tension uh, in Israel's leadership um, is rising, and it's, it's kind of like this. The question is for the, the tension that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin court, um, uh, here's the tension. The tension is, how can these spiritual leaders eradicate Jesus' followers, but still keep favor with the Jewish people, still keep favor with the Roman government. Now, I call that a diabolical tension because there's absolutely nothing good in that. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they're not struggling to find a good course of action in the face of some evil. No. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they're perplexed. They're trying to figure out how best to deceive everybody in order to feed their greed and their lust for power. And the first step towards that was to arrest Peter and John and the man who had just been healed. To threaten them, to intimidate them in court. And then they're uh, forbidden to Uh, by the court, to speak or teach about Jesus and his resurrection. So ironically, the spiritual leadership has just outlawed the gospel to their own people. Empowered again by the Holy Spirit, Peter and John boldly commit to obey Jesus rather than them. Remember that their decisive response, uh, Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. Uh, But Peter and John answered them, Well, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than uh, to God, you must judge for yourself. So basically saying, hey, it's on you. Maybe you want to do you, but here's what we're going to do. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard, the testimony of Christ's life. Now, that tears it. There's no going back now. Excuse me. The dec- uh, th- that declaration ushers in this tension that only courageous prayer can empower anyone to prevail over the whole in their whole lives. I call that a divine tension. A few years ago, a Christian um, uh, artist, Lauren Daigle, had a, uh, had a song that came out. It's called "Oh Lord," and the lyrics. Uh, some of the lyrics of that song capture this uh, divine tension. Excuse me. No matter what. So you already hear the tension. 
No matter what, until this race is won, I will stand my ground where hope can be found. Peter and John stood their ground. They stood their ground where hope can always be found, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Amen. So Peter and John returned to their fellow believers to to tell them what happened, and, and out of this recounting issues one of the more courageous prayers in Scripture that we could and maybe should pray. Should pray. If you've got your Bibles open this morning, we're starting in Acts chapter 4, verses 21, uh, 23 through 31. Now, God-honoring prayer is an essential practice of uh, any Christ follower, and especially of a leader, regardless of whether you're just leading your spouse or your family or maybe a work group, or your neighborhood. And with any God-honoring prayer, there's a divine tension where we embrace God's sovereignty and our responsibility in the face of difficulty. So as we look at the prayer of these early Christ followers, we're going to see this divine tension, starting in verse 23, going through 28. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do the nations rage and people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate uh, met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So here we see that courageous prayer gathers together. You know, I need to say that pastoral transitions in the life of a church, um, they're pretty unique. It's a very strategic season of ministry. Uh, Without fail, everywhere I've served, there's been mutual uh, learning and growth. I always learn something from the congregations that I serve and pastors and elders in that church. A few years ago, I listened to a a sermon by a previous pastor, and I just want to echo something he said. It was something along the order of this. It's like prayer, maybe some of the best prayer, occurs in the context of relationship. The best prayer occurs in the context of relationship. Prayer is not primarily a time just to kind of air our laundry list of needs and desires. Uh, It is a time where those can be expressed. Along with us being attentive, and the phrase we see here referring to God, our sovereign Lord, who is also our Father. Our Father. And what His will is for us. Do you hear that relationship? Father. And true to the model of prayer that Jesus gave His disciples in Matthew 6, notice that I said, Our Father. Because that highlights 
another relational dynamic. We have in Acts 4.23 where it says uh, the disciples returned to their own people that they would pray with and pray for also. So this doesn't refer just to the apostles. This is a much larger group. It's not as if only the apostles can be praying. The gathered church can pray. These people, like for us, they're our friends. They're our fellow believers. And, and here in Acts, we start to see the kingdom work is expanding beyond the work of just the apostles. The rest of the body of Christ is getting involved in the kingdom. The whole church is becoming more and more active, and here the context of their activity is prayer. So prayer gathers. Prayer gathers. It takes place in the context of relationship, our relationship with our sovereign Lord, our Father, as well as an expanding group of unified believers. Prayers involve us in relationships above and relationships among. Now, what stands out to you kind of indicating that uh, they embraced God's sovereignty? Well, we have the very obvious phrase, sovereign Lord, they cry out as they pray. Now, that's based upon God's creative primacy and his power. What I mean by that is they recognize that since God was powerful to create everything to, be, to begin with, they believed him to be powerful enough to rule his creation. And that since God had created everything in the first place, it was really his to do what he saw fit to do. Next in the prayer, we have a quote from one of David's psalms. It's Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. And this points to the futile and ancient efforts of those kings and nations who opposed God's kingdom, God's rule. Now, it's applied here to the present efforts. The present efforts of the, the Roman and Jewish conspirators who, for all their worldly power, all they did, they only accomplished what God had intended for them to accomplish in the first place. If you look at the the text of Psalm 2. We don't have time this morning, but basically Psalm 2 parallels are very obvious to what's going on here. The nations in Psalm 2 compare with the Gentiles in the present. Uh, the peoples of Psalm 2 compare with the people of Israel. The ancient kings and rulers compare with Herod and Pontius Pilate. So God's sovereignty rules over even the sinful deeds. God does not author the simple deeds, but he actually rules over those deeds of men and causes them to accomplish God's plan that he had from before the beginning of time. Jesus' suffering and his crucifixion at the hands of these conspirators was part of God's very challenging and original and sovereign plan to make salvation available to all who would believe. Now, I mentioned the Lord's Prayer earlier, so you, maybe you noticed this, but I'll point it out to you anyway. You know what these first five verses here are doing? Essentially, they're engaging the first part of the Lord's Prayer, and we even sang that prayer this morning. Hallowing the name of the Lord, praying for the kingdom of God to come. That word hallow includes the concept of 
of holiness. And holy contains the concept of divine moral purity and also a a set-apartness from creation. But holy is way more, it's a much bigger concept than uh, just being a singular divine quality. Holy contains the innermost description of God's uh, nature. We see that in Isaiah 6. So these believers are setting apart, setting God apart as unmistakably preeminent, not only in moral purity, but in wisdom and power and love and righteousness and mercy and justice and every other characteristic or quality of God. So you might be asking me, okay, well, Jeff, what's, what's the divine tension here? You were talking about that. What is that? Verse 29. They're praying. Now, Lord, consider their threats. The Sanhedrin court. Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Here we see that courageous prayer desires God's kingdom and dares to live boldly. And here's the holy tension. These believers fully expect that at some time they're going to suffer, maybe even die, in a similar manner that Jesus died. And yet they pray for opportunities to live just like Jesus. So for them and for us, the holy tension is embracing both God's sovereignty and a plan for our suffering and our responsibility to boldly carry out a disciple-making witness that we're pretty sure is going to increase our suffering. Peter and John and their friends, they didn't take this next perspective, but some of us might be tempted, we might be tempted to do this, and to, to pray for maybe a, a, an earthly perspective. From just a human, earthly wisdom perspective, we might be tempted to pray something like this. God, protect us from suffering that goes along with a visible testimony. Or give us such an insignificant ministry that we wouldn't merit suffering. Any of the Lord of the Ring fans here? Okay, good. That's great. Uh, If we don't engage the tension like Peter and John, um, we would be tempted to take the same approach that Frodo Baggins did with regards to the the Black Riders and the Nazgul in the first Lord of the Rings. Remember the, the Fellowship of the Ring movie? What did Frodo do at first? Did he stand in the middle of the road with the oncoming Black Riders and say, hey, bring it on, boys? No. He ran and hid his hairy little body under any rock or any tree that he could find. He wanted to be unnoticed by those who were threatening. And that's the human perspective. That's the the earthly wisdom that says, either make me invincible or make me invisible. I just don't want to suffer. I don't want to hurt. I don't want to be afraid. And it's like, it doesn't matter which. 
I just don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want that struggle. I don't want to suffer or die. Make me invincible or make me invisible. And unfortunately, I think maybe at times we live like that. Maybe. To be a bold witness of the gospel requires prayer. Much bold prayer. That's why these disciples are praying. Uh, any rifle or bow hunters in the room? Wow, that's great. Ask you why you're not out hunting right now. Sure, you see, the gospel puts you right in the crosshairs of the evil one, puts you right in the crosshairs of the fallen world. The gospel puts you in the crosshairs, and prayer changes you and makes you brave enough to stay there. And let me give you just a quick thought on prayer. A theologian describes the transforming of our will as a divine tension and the essence of God-honoring prayer. He says this, real prayer is life creating and life changing. Prayer, fervent prayer, believing prayer lies at the root of all godliness. To pray is to change. Prayer is the central avenue that God uses to transform us. If we are unwilling to change, we will abandon prayer as a notable characteristic in our lives. The closer we come to the heartbeat of God, the more we both see our need for and desire to be conformed to Christ. When we pray, we, God slowly and graciously both reveals our evasive actions and sets us free from them. So prayer requires boldness, attentiveness to the Holy Spirit in our lives to help us more regularly think God's thoughts, not ours. Think God's thoughts after, after Him, to see things from His perspective. Maybe prayer requires more boldness and attentiveness than we're used to expressing. Maybe. Now recognize that God manifested his presence among them by shaking the place, uh, the building that they were meeting in and praying in. And we're to understand, understand this as a sign of approval from God. Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. Now let me inject just a little bit of humor here. Uh, that's this shaking. It's a big deal. Okay. Hey, if you've not experienced anything like that, it can be very, uh, very unnerving. Previously, Kim and I lived in California for about 10 years, and we had several occasions to experience some mild earthquakes. Uh, in those times, we actually felt the ground move first before our home began to shake. So there's a little bit of difference going on here. And in those times, we weren't praying before the shaking took place, but we were really praying after the shaking took place. But I wonder, what if by chance, maybe Kim and I were doing our devotional, what if by chance we were praying and all of a sudden our, our house started to shake? It'd be kind of difficult for a few minutes to, to figure out the real cause of the shaking. Was it God's fault? Or just the San Andreas fault? That was the humor. 
So prayer requires boldness and attentiveness to the Holy Spirit. And all of us can work on that. And maybe God miraculously manifesting his presence more readily occurs in situations that maybe we're not used to being in. Maybe, maybe God miraculously manifesting his presence occurs at the junction of that boldness and attentiveness of gathered prayers in the face of persecution. Maybe. Maybe. Great ingredients that God may bless with his miraculous presence, but it's not guaranteed, right? God's not always going to shake a building. And we properly understand this to be descriptive of what God did here, but not prescriptive of what God's going to do every time a group of people gather to pray, back then and even now. He did not, and he will not always shake a building in response to the prayers of his believers, his collective followers. Not back then, not now. But don't let that remove any mystery or awe or wonder of God. If you're like me, a 21st century American, I don't expect God to regularly manifest himself uh, in this way, but I absolutely believe that he can and he still does. I just don't happen to be in the right building. Maybe through missionaries that you've heard of, like I have, those uh, who are living in other countries. You've heard of God doing something miraculous like this. Even today, God continues to miraculously embolden and empower his followers, especially where they're starting a new work in a new area, in other parts of the world where Scripture is unavailable and maybe opposition rages. So don't rule out God's miraculous signs. Don't let your awe of him be diminished. He miraculously affirmed the face of these first century believers to encourage them to manifest the kingdom of God. And they did by submitting to the Holy Spirit through courageous obedience. They did that in the face of radical opposition to the gospel. Opposition that one day would cost them their lives. As I wrap up, let me kind of circle back to a verse that I didn't go into. It's Acts 4, verse 13. So Peter and John are standing before the Sanhedrin court, boldly defending Jesus' claim to be the Savior of Israel, actually the Savior of the whole world, and the source of this miraculous healing of this lame man. There they masterfully use a a messianic claim from Psalm 118, and then they apply it to Jesus in the present, that Jesus is the Savior, he's the deliverer of Israel, and they rightly expand that he is the Savior to all, to all who would believe. And the response of the religious leaders was, was what? Let me read that. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common, in the Greek word, idioti, that's the kind of men they thought they were, Uh, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But But here's what I would say. The Sanhedrin were absolutely wrong. Peter and John 
hadn't just been with Jesus. They were still with Jesus. That phrase, filled with the Spirit, which is in our passage and throughout Acts, means that not only were they being guided by the Spirit of Christ, they were indwelt by Him. Christ was spiritually present in them. Guiding and inspiring the hearts and the minds and the wills, Jesus is in Peter, He's in John, and other believers pouring Himself out through His Spirit in the lives of these followers. And this is just as astonishing today as it is back as it was back then. When we allow the Spirit of Jesus to do through us and work through us, just as he did with his first century followers. Our boldness today understands that God has already confirmed his approval of our kingdom-building prayers and practices. Our boldness today looks back on the testimony of Scripture to see. And to know that today, as always, Jesus is for us. He is with us. He is in us. Maybe today, as courageous and collected, spirit-filled believers, prayers, we would boldly invite our sovereign Lord to shake us up, whether he shakes the building or not. Prayer is crucial. It's central to this passage. So evidently, God's directing us through His Word. It's in this passage, so we preach it and we practice it. So we need to pray always with joined hearts and as much as possible with joined hands, meaning physically being together with our brothers and sisters to pray. And it's essential that we move into addressing tensions that are in our lives so that we see them from God's perspective, not just from an earthly perspective. Some of these tensions are there because God allows them to be there. God allows them to be there, just like we see in the, with the apostles and their friends. Even today, the fallen world stands greatly opposed to the gospel. So answer this application question. Actually, this is one of the things that um, I feel like there's a... God is already at work. Uh, when Pastor uh, Jesse, he basically asked the same question that I'm asking for this application. So if you missed the opportunity to do that, listen to this, because I'm asking the same question that Jesse did. And it's this, what will I do with the divine tensions that I am experiencing and need to move more courageously towards and engage for the sake of the gospel? What do I sense God telling me to, to not be afraid in and to follow him in regardless of the consequences? Courageous prayer. Now, it can be done alone. But it's often better in the collected presence of our brothers and sisters, unified believers. The church body together will help us with those tensions. We will stand together in prayer, and we stand together in the crosshairs. My last thought comes from pastor and writer Warren Wiersbe. Uh, he says this, The immediate purpose of prayer 
is the accomplishing of God's will on earth. The ultimate purpose of prayer is the eternal glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we want to be all over that encouragement. We want to be all over that relational connection with you, with your son, with your, your family. Help us to, to see that, to desire that. Help us to live that out. Father, we recognize that you've given us everything we need to face the challenges in our life. You've promised us strength and the resources that are more than sufficient to live holy lives that honor you and bring you glory. This week, Father, our sovereign Lord, our Creator, we want to courageously accomplish your will as our lives are anchored in grace and truth. May we be guided by your Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, to show grace and truth to everyone that we encounter. And, we may, and may we find victory in the tensions to bring you glory. In Christ's name, amen.